Hey everyone, welcome to Politics in Perspective, episode five. Uh, I can't believe we're more than a month into this podcast. Uh, I'm Cole Reynolds, and Taylor is out of town today, so I'll be taking the lead on this one. Um, to help pick up the slack, though, we have a very special guest um, calling in is Mr. Schneider, a history and expos teacher at Head Royce and an alum. Uh, Mr. Schneider, thanks for coming on the show. Cole, my pleasure. It's great to be with you on truly, you know, it can be a cliche, a historic day. It is absolutely a historic day. So pleasure to speak with you like as it's unfolding in real time. Exactly. I took the words right out of my mouth. We're recording this, obviously, on the Saturday after the election, just about six hours ago, less than six hours ago, actually. Um, Vice Former Vice President Joe Biden uh, was named President-Elect of the United States, ending this, it feels like, decades-long electoral process. Um, so just gut reactions. What, when you woke up, woke up, heard the news, uh, what was your first thought? Oh, boy. It was sort of like a slow-moving train coming in incredibly in slow motion and wondering if it's a, an oncoming train that's going to hit you or the light at the end of the tunnel or whatnot. Today, I didn't wake up with too many nerves or too much anticipation because it's the trend line seemed very clear in terms of, in particular, where Pennsylvania was going. And I was more wondering, what, what's it going to take to call it? Um, and so it was just sort of waiting around, waiting around. Felt a little anticlimactic in that sense. But then when the news came out, um, then it was really powerful, really powerful to, to see the images on screen of people celebrating, hear the interviews of people from all walks of life and what impact this has made on them. Um, to see Joe Biden elected and Kamala Harris elected as well, the first black South Asian biracial woman vice president in American history. Um, so I, I'd say slow and steady, and it's felt a little bit comfortable. And now it's sort of the emotions and impact are flooding, I'd say now. Yeah, I think I woke up anticlimactic is exactly how I was going to describe it. Like it was, um, it was not a big surprise. I was just kind of like, uh, uh, we've expected this. Uh, now it's just official, like whatever. I'm not that uh, excited or whatever. But it, it only really hit me when I watched Van Jones on CNN. Um, he had a lot of emotion talking about what this meant for him as a father raising um, his kids to love America or to um, to hold truth-telling to be a, an important value as a human. Um, and he was really emotional, and I was like, wow. Um, this I knew this was big. I knew this was big. And um, it, it only really kind of hit me right then what, what were – that this moment is going to be remembered for, um, for decades, generations. I could. It's so funny you bring that up, Cole. I couldn't agree more. And actually, it, it took me back to four years ago, the night when Donald Trump was elected, which was a shocker to most of the establishment and most pollsters and most people. And Van Jones, uh, you can find it. And, you know, your listeners could all find it on YouTube. Van Jones spoke to the moment then, and he spoke to it as a father, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said it much more eloquently, but essentially said, you teach your kids, don't be a bully, don't be a bigot, do your homework, be prepared, be honest, and then you get a result like this. And he said, you're, you're afraid of breakfast, is what he said. You're afraid to wake up and explain to your kids what's going on and what type of role model that would be, just from a character standpoint, you know? 
And he spoke to that again as just a, a parent and a human being. Um, and yeah, I just think he put it so poignantly on just a human level. Um, and yeah, Van Jones, I, sometimes I can disagree with him, but um, those two moments uh, from recapping these both, both of these historic and um, gut-wrenching elections uh, were are two moments that I'm going to remember uh, looking back on this whole electoral process. Um, obviously, uh, you were around for 2000 and all that happened there. Uh, how do these two elections compare? What a question. So yeah, in 2000, I was a freshman in college and I remember I had a big macroeconomics test the next day and I'm watching TV, waiting for the results and they call Florida for Al Gore and they take it back and they call it for George W. Bush and sort of take it back. And I'm up till two in the morning, three in the morning, waiting for a result. And little did I know it was going to take weeks in a Supreme Court case to resolve that. So what I would say, Cole, is the, the comparison I would make was um, 2000 was so unexpected because it seemed like it was going to be a traditional election. And then as it unfolded only over time, was it clear that it was going to be so contentious, so litigious and so close? This was sort of um, the opposite in a way in terms of we know we're in a pandemic. We knew that there were going to be red mirages and blue shifts and all of that. We, you know, with all the massive mail-in vote, we knew there was going to be slow counting in Pennsylvania. They weren't allowed to start counting till after the election and so on. Um, and then, like you said, it was incredibly stressful and then became more and more clear and sort of slow and steady and almost anticlimactic as it unfolded. Um, so in one sense, it was quite different that way. One seemed traditional and normal, and then became something anything but. And this one seemed crazy. Um, but one huge difference I would say would be the candidates and how what they represent, and not even symbolically, what they mean, what they would do, the different directions the country would go in. And it's just as we've seen the supporters, the tens of millions of supporters, historic support on each side. I mean, Cole, I'd love to hear how you saw it, but I see it as, would there be a red wave? Would there be a blue wave? I saw it as two waves crashing against each other um, and just creating a, like a tsunami. And so. What a just, way to put it. I mean, that is, that's a pretty powerful metaphor, the your tsunami metaphor, but you're talking about the mirages earlier and we knew they were going to happen. We knew what to expect. Uh, that didn't make it any easier to watch. <laughs> um, I, I think you, I could, I speak for everyone saying that when you look at a, 18-point lead for Trump in Virginia and a lead of six, 600,000 votes in Pennsylvania for Trump. It's like you, it's just hard to believe that Joe Biden could have overcome that. But here we are sitting four days later with Biden up in all four remaining swing states, obviously one Virginia, but, um, and it looks like he's going to be the president-elect, obviously. Uh, the people can't uh, project for the Republican shenanigans that have already started. And um, in Rudy Giuliani's um, press conference today in Philadelphia, he acknowledged like um, the fact that look at these red mirages. It's mathematically impossible um, that Joe Biden could come back from this, but he did. Clearly it's rigged. Um, where do you think this oncoming litigation is going to go? 
Great question. So one thing I think is really important is the margin of victory. And would Biden be able to win by more than just one state? If it came down to, say, just a couple thousand votes in Pennsylvania, to use kind of your analogy, Cole, like a Florida 2000 situation, which really hinged on, what, 525 votes in Florida, something like that for the whole ball of wax, I could see it being incredibly contested um, lawsuits that drag out, go up to the Supreme Court, et cetera. Given the margin of victory that we're looking at in these states and that if things hold as they're looking like, there's going to be maybe 306 electoral college votes for Joe Biden, ironically, the, the exact inverse of what Donald Trump had four years ago. Um, I think that provides the cushion to where, yes, there will be lawsuits. Um, there'll be dozens of them, but I think they're going to be processed and thrown out and sorted through very quickly. Um, people who are much more knowledgeable legal minds than I, Ben Ginsburg and others who are professionals in this field, seem to think as of yet, there's just nothing substantial there to any mass fraud. Anything that could overturn these results is just uh, just not going to happen. Yeah, and I think I think the we we've known that these lawsuits aren't going to go anywhere. But what's really the test is what the Trump supporters, the Trump base, thinks of these lawsuits. And um, one of those cushion states uh, that that you're talking about, surprisingly, uh, kind of was Georgia. And um, this is a big win. And obviously, it hasn't been called yet. Re we're firmly in recount territory in Georgia. But if it were to go to Biden, it would be a huge symbolic win in the Sun Belt. Um, and there's a huge props go to Stacey Abrams and um, the Atlanta-based uh, activists to turn out um, a huge Democratic vote in Georgia this year. Um, do you think this... And especially after the fiasco that was Stacey Abrams' own election in 2018, um, we could go into that later. But um, after that, they turn out a bunch of supporters. Is the Georgia model something that the Democratic Party can replicate all over the Sun Belt and even into the South? I do think so. I think that's the answer. Now, Stacey Abrams is one of a kind, you know, or maybe not one of a, she's special. Um, but there are others who can follow in her mold for sure. And it's just that there are no shortcuts to really earning the trust of one's community and putting in the work, the grinding, unglamorous, painstaking work of voter registration, getting the word out. And I mean, she built that, you know, if I'm not mistaken, registered about 800,000 voters, brought them into the fold for, a, for an election that's going to be decided by maybe 7,000 votes, something like that. I mean, we'll see as all the ballots come in and, the, you know, the recount and so on. But um, you know, the fact that she would take a, a loss of just 55,000 votes, she was utterly convinced that she was deprived of it due to voter suppression and things like that, and that she didn't give up. And she, in her own words, she said she um, just basically went into hiding and just processed and worked through her emotions for about 10 days. And then she's like, you know what, I'm going to get back in the game. And she spent the past two years building to this moment. So to answer your question, Cole, I think it's, it's the way it has to be. If, if the Democrats want to continue to win, I think the biggest mistake would be to say, we won, we did it. Um, we've defeated Donald Trump and that's all going to go away. Look, at it was by a razor's edge in these states. And for the Democrats to continue to be successful and to get transformative legislation passed, they're going to need to go into communities, build trust, do giant voter registration years out. And it's just going to have to be a constant thing. 
Um, and if they do, if they do that, if they put in that work, yes, I think it's possible for Georgia to be replicated in other states and transform the map. Um, yeah, and you're talking about transforming the map, and the biggest piece to the Biden win was obviously rebuilding the blue wall up in the upper Midwest, something that uh, strikes close to home for me, uh, coming from Wisconsin. Um, but one thing that I'm wondering is what will be the Democratic coalition going forward? Because as the Democratic Party moves more and more progressive um, each election cycle, like Biden is 10 times more, running on a 10 times more progressive message than Obama did in 2008, who wouldn't um, acknowledge gay marriage as a marriage, for example. Um, as the Democratic Party becomes more and more left-leaning, um, their message might not be as palatable to that blue wall up in the Midwestern states. So is um, so what is the Democratic coalition going forward? Is it a Sunbelt plus Texas type of situation? Or do you think the Democrats can still hold on to the um, blue wall up there in the Midwest? It's a great question. Um, I don't think it's necessarily an either or geographically, but I do think it is ideologically. They're going to have to decide. And tell me if you agree with this, Cole, but my take on it now is I see each party, the Democratic Party, Republican Party, has they're in a tug of war for the country. And it's almost like a 50-50 tug of war. And then within each party, there's almost not necessarily a 50-50. It's not evenly slanted, but a tug of war for the farther left versus the moderate left and the far right versus the moderate right. And I think Donald Trump, I'm going to call him the far right, um, compared to, say, a Mitt Romney-type, um, Paul Ryan-type um, Republican. Um, I think he has gained the strong support of that party. Now what's going to happen with the Democratic Party in terms of what I'll say maybe is an AOC, you know, type more leading progressive or a more Jim Clyburn, um, Joe Biden, more moderate Democrat. Are they going to cannibalize each other on either side or are they going to find a way to be united? And whichever party is able to stay more united, I think is going to have the ability um, to be the stronger party going forward. And if they are unified in their message and have good policies, I think they can win over the voters they're going to need um, in the Rust Belt and in the Sun Belt. Um, and the big wild card call, I'd say, would also be, and I hate when this term is used, the Latino vote, because that, that treats it as, a, as if it's a monolithic group. There are so many different Latino communities within America in different states. Arizona is very different than, say, Cuban Americans or Venezuelans in Florida, et cetera. But that is clearly a growing um, group of citizens that need to be engaged, respected, and whichever party um, can really earn their trust and earn their votes of Latino communities in various states, I think they can own the future too. Absolutely. And I'm not, I don't think, as the Democratic Party moves farther left, I don't know if they're going to be able to capture that Cuban vote in Miami. It's just even though Biden just blew, if you look at it, he blew Florida out of the water, Tallahassee, even gained some votes up there in the panhandle. Um, Palm Beach, uh, he overperformed in Florida, except for the just collapse in Miami-Dade, yeah. which is just a heartbreaker for the Democratic Party. Um, but I think, I think the division in the party is super um, important because... Look, Mitch McConnell has a big decision coming for him. And 
Um, he, I think it's a little easier for him than the Democratic Party, but he, because he can just play obstructionist now, and it's already started, and it's really sad to see that, especially in the middle of a crisis like this. Um, but Mitch McConnell has a decision to make, and because now the Republican Party is back in his control. For the last four years, Donald it's been Donald Trump's party. He's been super popular. He's turned out voters, and it's helped the Republican Party, but it's Donald Trump's control. It's Donald Trump's cult of personality that makes it run. Now Mitch McConnell has control back over the Republican Party. Do you think he goes and panders towards the Trump far right that's super popular at this moment? Or do you think he goes back with Chuck Grassley and um, some of the more moderate Republicans, even though they're just super obstructionist and partisan? Do you think they try to take control back for uh, the Republican establishment? Such a good question, Cole. Yeah. Well, one thing we'll have to see would be Georgia with those two Senate seats. If uh, going back to Stacey Abrams, if the Democrats can sort of pull off a miracle and have huge mobilization, which I I think it's a a total long shot to even get one of the two seats, to be honest, let alone both. They could somehow avoid the Mitch McConnell situation if they could get the 50 seats by winning those two Georgia seats. That would give um, congressional control to the Democrats. But that's a long shot, I think. And then if not, you're right, the Mitch McConnell Senate Majority Leader. I think, I'm not sure he has to choose necessarily. Tell me what you think, Cole, but I'm wondering if he just, to use the word you said exactly, if he just is an obstructionist and essentially just um, labels the Democrats as far left, socialists, um, too far gone, too radical, basically just um, sort of demonizes their policies and their positions and says he can't support them and he's standing up for everyday Americans by rejecting their flawed policies. And in so doing, tries to keep the support of the Trump coalition and the more traditional Republican coalition. The only thing that's uniting them completely is opposition to the Democratic policies. And maybe that's all McConnell has to do. That, or do you think he does have to choose? What do you think? Well, look, he's going to have to choose in four years. That's a, that's a given. Um, some people say Donald Trump's going to run again. Some people say Don Jr. is going to run. Um, but look, there's some rising stars in the Republican Party on the far left. Look, um, there's this guy, he's, his name is Madison, something he spoke at the RNC, I forget. But he just got a lot, he's the youngest member of Congress now. I think he's a paraplegic, um, but he is a staunch Trump. He rode the Trump wave all the way to uh, Congress. And he his uh, claiming victory tweet wasn't like, I'm proud to be uh, representing uh, my district. It was like, suck it, libs. I'm going oh, to Congress, something like that. Something yeah. super ridiculous. So look, the Trump, I think the Trump, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I think the Trump uh, zeitgeist will live on. And sometime in the next couple of years, the Republican Party, uh, just like the Democratic Party, and I think we'll talk about them in a minute, um, the Republican Party is going to make a, have to make a decision on which direction they're going to go. And McConnell's going to have to lead that effort. I think you're right. I, I do think you're right about that. I think had there been a true giant repudiation, say had Joe Biden won by nine or two, the way the polls were looking, if you looked at Nate Silver's predictions, you know, had those come to pass and it'd been a nine or 10 point Biden win and the Democrats picked up House seats instead of losing them and gained control of the Senate, 
if it was a giant mandate, I think then there would be a giant civil war within the Republican Party and there'd be people looking to run from Trump and Trumpism. And I think instead it's been emboldened. It's like sort of just missed barely, but but the strategy wasn't flawed, I think is what a lot of people in the Republican Party are going to conclude. And so I think we'll have to, we'll know it when we see it. And I think there's going to be some conflict, but if I had to pick now, I think Trumpism is going to completely remain. And I wouldn't be surprised if it continues to grab hold of that party, if if not Donald Trump himself bringing it back. Can, um, Don, can anybody else... Uh, do that brand except Donald Trump. It's a kind of cult of personality right now. And if it's a loser brand now, because it's all built on winning and America is first and this whole idea of owning the libs. Well, in the presidential election, the libs own Donald Trump. So is, will Trumpism, can anybody else um, do that, do Trumpism? or And will Trumpism still have that same um, punch to it after it, it lost in this election? It's a really good question. How much, I think that's a question of how much of it is based on Donald Trump himself as a personality. And clearly his cult of personality was a huge part of it. But I also think there's a giant apparatus for those who feel um, shut out of society, who have grievances um, and are just upset with the way things are going, who have a real anti-establishment mentality. Um, I think that can remain and can be capitalized on um, as well as some as the culture war stuff, um, and frankly, prejudice and racism. I I, I think that, that has to be part of the conversation as well um, as uh, as something that's been fed and fueled and can continue to be used tragically for for political gain. Yeah, and one thing this election has definitely proved is that racism and sexism run deeper into America than anybody uh, realized, um, at least here. Uh, in Oakland, California. But um, the same thing that's happening on the Republican side is also happening on the Democratic side. And look, I was was very critical of the progressive wing, wing of the Democratic Party in 2016. I was, um, you can listen to all of the episodes of Politics in Perspective when I vehemently um, attacked the no vote Bernie bros and the Jill Steiners for um trying to be morally good for themselves rather than sucking up and doing what's right for the country. But we have to give them credit because this time the progressive vote did show up and not as much as people might have hoped, but it definitely did. And it definitely helped um, Biden secure Georgia, definitely Wisconsin, mm-hmm. Michigan, maybe even Pennsylvania. Yeah. So um, we, ha- we have to give credit where credit is due to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. But um, if there's the messaging after 2016, like uh, like there was after 2016, after this election, that the progressives are against Democratic Party, um, it might turn them away from the Democratic cause for good. So what do you think uh, the Democratic Civil War will look like? It's a great question. It's a really delicate coalition that needs to be held together. Um, Yeah, as I was saying before, I think either side, right or left, Democrat or Republican, if they don't hold their coalition together and the other side does, they will own the country. They will own the political map, I think. Neither of them have the margin for error to have a fragmented coalition or in low turnout in a big election. Um, It's so interesting, Cole. There was a great article in Politico just a couple days ago about the, the House kind of after 
after report, their after action report. There was, a, I guess, a, a conference call with all the members of the House of Representatives where the Democrats way underperformed. I remember Nancy Pelosi was predicting to win about pick up like double digit seats. And instead, they're, they're losers. Um, huge swing. And there, this exact conflict came out um, between progressives who said, we have to be authentic to our ideals and not compromise. And that's what excites people and, and generates that turnout that we need. And others, particularly in the Midwest, saying, you're getting us killed with things like defund the police um, and so using the term socialism is a political loser and we're, we're going to get crushed um, and never win elections again if we don't um, change. And what they were talking about in the conference call was maybe they could compromise on messaging, on using different terminology instead of democratic socialism or defund the police could be instead reform the police, something like that. But I think it runs deeper than just semantics. And I think um, I think there's going to be need to be some compromise within the Democratic Party. They're going to need to meet each other somewhat in the middle, I think, to keep each other together. If they turn on each other, I think it's going to cost them dearly. Well, I think I think Pelosi has to realize that moderation is not working anymore for the Democratic Party. I mean, if she had half a brain cell, I mean, I think that she would recognize that um, even though Joe Biden won, this was still low turnout for what they were expecting, and they're just gonna need something, someone to fire up the Democratic Party, and that's clearly becoming progressivism. And and we were talking about it earlier. Um, something that might be more palatable to Sunbelt voters than uh, Midwestern voters. But um, we have to look, Pelosi has to take stock of where they're at. And if she should realize that the Democratic Party is moving more and more to the left, and I think she should accept that. But if she had to accept that, what she would need some some star of the party to run on. And who is that to you? Who, if you could pick anybody, it doesn't even have to be a politician. Um, come 2024, 2028, whenever the next candidate for the Democratic Party has to run, who is it? Yeah, I don't think that person exists yet. I think I true. I've, I've been scanning the map looking for it. Obviously, Kamala Harris is sort of teed up, you know, as the as the next vice president. Um, She'd have a great resume, and if, if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, if their administration leads us very strongly out of coronavirus, the economy keeps steadily improving, and they're able to deliver some popular um, packages, um, infrastructure, things like that that people care about, maybe she'd be well-positioned um, to be the standard bearer, maybe, but I don't know. I think, I think it's someone who's not yet out there. Um, I think back to... Barack Obama was sort of a nobody until he was somebody. He arrived on the scene very quickly. And I think, I think that's something that we've seen in our political landscape now is that you can have a rising star kind of come out of nowhere. You know, Donald Trump, obviously, zero political experience, no public office ever. And all of a sudden he wins his primary and wins the presidency right out of the chute. Barack Obama is a junior senator from Illinois, gives a very inspiring speech at the 2004 Democratic National Convention. Four years later, He's the president in a, in a massive win. Um, so I think it can happen that it's someone who's not really in our crosshairs right now. I don't know. Do you see anyone of the, of the known candidates who's ready to step in there and be that standard bearer for the Democratic Party? Well, I think, I think the one person that 
reminded me a little bit of Obama was AOC, but obviously the GOP probably saw that. Fox News probably saw that a little bit and just shut her down from the very beginning. Like she has zero shot to move anywhere, I think, except the House at this point. But saying that, I think Nancy Pelosi has to realize that, look, it's time to give AOC, Rashida Tlaib, um, Ilan Omar, and Ayanna Presley, and more progressive candidates, better, uh, better assignments for committees, and start to incorporate them into leadership. Because if you keep fighting this, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, Pelosi's going to run the Democratic Party into the ground. And <laughs> And she and Schumer are not, it's not going to work if they keep fighting it. So they need to incorporate them into the leadership and work out some type of compromise. I do totally agree with you on that, Cole. I think it's, you know, you're, you're an athlete and a sports fan. I think it's kind of like a, a team with aging veterans and no farm system. Like, what's the plan going forward? And if you just look at the age and elitism that's in the Democratic leadership, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden... We're talking about people in their you know late seventies, you know, really old, and I think you right. You need to have um, a bridge to the future. Um, I think Joe Biden realizes that. To your point, it's not just Joe Biden; it's Nancy Pelosi and others need to be cultivating that future path. But um, I think Joe Biden realizes that. You know, he called himself a transitional candidate, but totally to your point, how well this kind of old guard, if you will, within the Democratic Party willingly tease up future leaders and grooms them, like you said, with important assignments, um, I think is really key. Um, and I think we could see that in some of these cabinet picks that Joe Biden makes. Um, it's, it's their chance to tee up the future. And to your point, if they miss that opportunity, um, it, you know, it'll be like That's a baseball true. team where they, they lose all their old veterans, and they have no farm system, and then they, they're going to be a losing team for a long time. Yeah, it's not going to be it's not going to be good. One thing that the younger section of the Democratic Party is really good at is messaging. And we've seen the rise. We talked about it in episode two. Go check it out if you haven't seen our episodes. But um, we talked about social media and we saw AOC playing Among Us to drum up support to get out the vote. Um, and these this new wave of social media is really taking hold of the political world, but also been controversial. So I'm wondering your opinions on the reader, recent Twitter activity of Donald Trump and his allies account. Obviously, we saw uh, Steve Bannon tweet that Fauci should be beheaded and put on a pike in, at the yeah. White House and got suspended permanently. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts about everybody's Twitter use and um, Twitter's reactions to it? Yeah, I can understand how it's tough. We want to err on the side of free speech and not censorship and so on. But I would agree that there has to be the limiting that took place. It's, it's totally inappropriate for things that incite violence, like, like the Steve Bannon example against Dr. Fauci, abhorrent, abhorrent. And I think that was totally appropriate, the, the action that they took to ban him. I think the policy that's come into play of noting when a tweet is not factual, um, still allowing it to stand, but saying, you know, as when, I, I mean, I think we could check it out right now, Cole. I think it's seven hours ago, I think in all caps, Donald Trump tweeted out, um, I won the election and big, something like that. It's one of his last few. I don't think he's tweeted since then, but you know that's the president of the United States claiming that he's won an election um, in direct conflict with the results. Um, 
it's unprecedented in American history. And so that's where I think the independent arbiters of information, like the media, they have to stand up and, and do their job. Otherwise, things could really descend into chaos and, and violence, um, which I'm a little worried we might see tonight, Cole, to be honest with you. I, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts. What do you think the reaction is going to be like tonight in you know, downtown Oakland, in downtown Philadelphia, and throughout the country? What do you, what do you think are the, you're going to well, see tonight? In our backyard in Oakland, I'm not really worried. I think it's going to be more jubilation than really anything um, because obviously how liberal this town is. Um, but in other cities in Pennsylvania, um, I know my grandparents live in uh, Pennsylvania. Um, in Philadelphia, uh, did I say Pennsylvania was a city earlier? I can't, I can't tell. I think I did. But um, They're in Hershey, right, specifically? Yeah, they're in Hershey. Uh, around the Harrisburg area, but in Pennsylvania and around um, around uh, the Philadelphia, I think there is potential for violence. And you see Trump supporters have completely bought into this idea that the election is legitimate if Trump wins, but delegitimate if, or unlegitimate um, if he loses. And that's a really dangerous thing. And we could see how brainwashed our population is by their response to it. Um, and I hope, and look, Trump supporters have, look, they've had domestic terrorism. I mean, I'm not, that's not hyperbole or anything. We saw them block off the Biden campaign bus and crash, intentionally crash into Biden staffers' cars um, to prevent them from going to rallies, which is violence in the, to achieve a political gain, which is terrorism. Um, and you will really see how deep that goes tonight. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I agree. I think there's going to be lots of dancing in the streets and celebration. And I'm worried that that's going to be met with, um, people coming in, uh, armed and perhaps stoking violence. I mean, I, I, God, I hope not, but yeah, I'm, I'm concerned as well. Just as you said, if you have millions of people who truly believe that democracy is being stolen from them, because I think it's illegitimate and is a cabal of, of fake votes and, and stealing an election, um, that's incredibly dangerous. I mean, we saw even in Philadelphia, there was a, a car with a, a couple people armed um, and they, they were apprehended before it led to anything, but they had QAnon hats and they were trying to go to the voting center where they were counting votes and um, disrupt things. So I'm actually, I'm incredibly happy with how smooth the election went, election day. Um, you know, in the middle of a pandemic with so much tension, I was really worried that something might happen that would disrupt it. Uh, and I just, I hope that holds tonight and over the next couple of days. I, I'm, I've said that I believe it will. I think, I really think that people will just realize that the Trump message is just a losing message and i think they're just going to try to disassociate with that um and or at least i hope that's what happens but uh, we're talking about here and how liberal it is here and california as a whole and it's a success for the democrats this election in california that it was a clearly a huge margin to reject donald trump and to implement joe biden in the presidential election obviously um it pretty much went expected in the House, but there are signs of trouble for the liberalism of uh, California, and that comes in the propositions, which a numerous, very um, in 
instrumental uh, liberal policies to the democratic message were rejected this year um, in the propositions. What do you think? Um, should we be worried about um, this? About as Democrats, should we be worried about the uh, these propositions, or is it kind of no big deal? No, I think I think should be worried. Yeah, I think. Tell me if you agree, Cole. But I think one of my takeaways, um, if you're looking for what the election told us about America and about California as well, um, we're as divided as ever, incredibly divided, passionately so, and we're not as progressive. Um, as we think we are in California. I, th I think the propositions are evidence of that. And in particular, I I'd love to get your thoughts, Cole, on affirmative action. Um, that's looking like that's going down to defeat decisively. Um, and I don't know, I, I had thought that that would gain more support um, in this moment of you know the continued um, elevation of the Black Lives Matter movement, tons of support in marches and public demonstrations of support for looking at um, changing policies that could help empower people. Um, and it, this looks like to many that that would be a policy that could help achieve that, to help give opportunity and be an anti-racist policy. And it's not gonna win even in California. And it, well, it leads to, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm split on that one because I, I can't tell if that's just a messaging, just blunder. Because look, if you look at the title of the proposition and check out, Gianti and I's article on um, uh, on Head Rice's um, Xbox page. We wrote about the propositions. Uh, it was released on Monday, uh, but it's Prop 16, and um, and I think one of the one of the titles was uh, allow discrimination in um, the like public workplace on race, gender, and sex. And when I first re read it, like, I was like, what is this? Like, allow discrimination based on the, uh, on race and gender and things. I was like, who, how does this even get on a ballot? Like, that's just ridiculous. But then obviously after researching it, I realized it was just a way of saying affirmative action. But if you hadn't read about that, or if you had watched ads on TV, about it and you read that the actual title of the of the measure when you went and voted for it like that is a repugnant idea <laughs> for a proposition it would and look like you're, you're sanctioning discrimination exactly basically. and mm -hmm. um so i'm wondering if that really contributed because that could if it's very possible that 10 percent of calif the people who voted on it didn't know what it actually meant and voted against it because of that horrible idea. Right. Um, I don't know if it's a messaging error. Yeah, I think your point is, is really well taken. It's sometimes not that simple. The, the messaging can be key. The amount of advertising can can really sway something. It's not necessarily just the, the substance of the issue itself. You're, and there can be the cause, and then there can also be the implementation of it, the policy details of it can can be either problematic or turn people off, depending on the proposition. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think messaging could have could have loom pretty large there. Um, one, but one progressive policy that I think messaging didn't loom large was prop, I wanna say it's 17, yeah, no, uh, prop 18, um, which is allow 17 year olds the ability to vote in primaries, which didn't pass. And what was incredible about that was it had zero opposition. People 
gave zero dollars into opposition advertisement and millions of dollars into pro advertisement, and it still didn't pass. There was literally not a single person in political power saying no to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it still didn't pass. So that is the one that I look like, that I'm like, where are we um, as a progressive uh, state? I totally agree with you. Yeah, it looks like it lost by 10 points, like 55, 45. Yeah. And it's ironic, right, Cole? Because it's it's adults voting on for not adults, right? For their, their rights and enfranchisement. Um, and the adults decided by 10% not to extend that, that ability um, to vote. And as you said, yeah, in terms of, well, what are the compelling arguments against? They weren't offered and yet people still didn't want, didn't either trust minors to be able to make responsible decisions or whatever the consensus opinion was on that. But yeah, I think for that one, Cole, I, I do think that's an example of, we are not as progressive as we would, uh, as many would believe um, throughout California. I think that might be a, a product of being in a Bay Area bubble that gives a distorted sense of California as a whole, perhaps. Or maybe there's some sort of shy, moderate voters, it could call them, you know, people who at home with the ballot box, when they're filling out their ballots, might, might vote no, um, even if they wouldn't lead you to believe that publicly, maybe. Not, not sure, but... Um, I'm wondering if there are more moderates out there than progressives in the Democratic Party as a whole. I think I think that's a fair evaluation of it because I think in Alameda County, look, Alameda County got overruled in so many um, propositions in California. Like we were on the losing side. The way Alameda County voted was on the losing side for just a shocking number of propositions. So. Um, yeah, I think I think people will do closer analysis of California's vote and how um, it broke down into uh, into different categories of people and how many. Um, I think the poll people will be on that very quickly, and that'll be interesting to see uh, how how progressive we are as a as a state because um, people always talk about California as this hallmark of progressivism nowadays um but it could be that we're actually more libertarian uh Mm -hmm. than anything it's a really good point yeah um yeah so i think i think uh another thing that's really important um to talk about is is what what does biden do now like what is what does he do now? Like um, he has, he looks like he's not going to have a Senate barring something or just a miracle. So, I think a lot of progressives, especially here in California, were hoping that it would just be a resounding Democratic wave all over the country, um, that they would capture the Senate, the House, the presidency, and they would just pack the courts and just have a just a trifecta across everything. Um, and then they would just implement, whether people liked it or not, they would just implement progressive rules upon the people, even if they rejected them at first. And they would come to realize that progressivism is, it, that it works, that the so-called socialism is a good thing in America. Clearly, that's not going to happen. So if you're Joe Biden, if you're in his cabinet, what do you do? Because clearly, you're going to have to compromise with Republicans. 
I think you nailed it, Cole, and how you said it. Yeah. And that casts Joe Biden in kind of the role I think he's most comfortable in, to be honest with you. Not that he doesn't have some true progressive values and policies. As you pointed out, you know, he was in support of, of gay marriage and, and outspokenly so before Barack Obama even was, as an example. So I don't want to, you know, discredit him as not having any true progressive beliefs. But he has, and he's ran on this repeatedly, and it's been in his track record. He likes to not make enemies of conservatives and Republicans. He likes to reach across the aisle um, and have personal friendships with them, John McCain famously and others. And he likes to strike deals in the middle um, and try to get things done. And now he's going to have to. So that was going to be one of, I think, the million dollar questions if the Democrats did have control of the Senate is did they just sort of run roughshod over Republican um, opposition to pass the most progressive policies, maybe eliminate the filibuster, perhaps even expand the Supreme Court, even though, you know, Joe Biden said he wanted to study it in a bipartisan way over a long time. Now, I think Joe Biden, both by necessity, but also by his default um, way of being, is going to want to try to find compromise um, and do things like infrastructure and things where there is more common ground to be found. But I will say this, I think we're going to get some clues tonight. You know, he's, he's having his address tonight in his speech. And in his remarks last night, I was a little struck by how he said, I have a mandate. And then he mentioned some things like um, criminal justice, racial justice in America and climate change. And, you know, he didn't try to just pedal, soft pedal some really progressive issues. So I just, I wonder, I wonder if he is going to try to fight on a few of them for some really some progressive transformative policies, um, but without the votes there in the Senate. I think he's going to be in the more compromising, more more moderate lane. I think. Unfortunately, when it comes to racial policy and criminal justice, I don't think they're going to go anywhere. Because look, if the Democrats get something substantial done for the black community under a Biden presidency, um, for the for Latinos, even though we've gone over how none of none of these minority groups are uh, monolithic, if the Democrats actually could accomplish something substantial in criminal justice reform and um, and something of that nature. Look, it would wipe out all of the Republican gains made with those voters this election cycle. And it's just as sad as that sounds, that's the state of politics in the mm-hmm. United States. And Mitch, I, I can't think that Mitch McConnell would be like, we're going to set aside our political ambitions for the good of uh, the American people and allow the Democrats this quote-unquote win, even though it would be a win for America, for um, for humanity, and yeah. for human rights. Yeah, I think you're right, Cole. I definitely, I think, right, like you said, Mitch McConnell, unfortunately, we've seen that this is uh, the number one tool in his toolbox, you know, when is to is to obstruct, you know, and the Merrick Garland situation would be one. And so I think you're right. I think that is the case. I think there could be a few narrow exceptions, like the First Step Act that was passed, you know, and that Donald Trump signed. I think there could be an additional act like that in some modest, an additional criminal justice reform, a Second Step Act. I think there could be a few things like that. But you're right, in terms of transformative change, passing a new Civil Rights Voting Act, um, major things, I... Yeah, I think that's going to take um, changing the composition of the Senate or 
maybe lightning will strike twice in Georgia and we'll look back on this conversation and, and it'll be a very different one because the composition will have been changed. But I do think that's unlikely. Alaska is also in play too. I don't think it's been called as of this moment and we're not going to know for another week, but the Democrat up there says that he feels good about the position he's in. A lot of the outstanding vote is from Anchorage and a more progressive areas of Alaska, even though that's hard to believe they're out there. Um, but that could be a way to only have to win one uh, Senate seat in Georgia. It's amazing how the course of events can change based on one or two seats, one or two outcomes can just completely change the course of history and the direction of America. And right, it could come down to some late breaking votes in Anchorage, Alaska and one runoff in Georgia. And that we're looking at an entirely different situation. Um, yeah, but, it's, it's yeah. going to be insane. It's, I mean, these next couple months, the last thing uh, that I want to touch on is Donald Trump's a lame duck for all we know right now. Um, what is he going to do? What, one, what is he going to do in these next 73 days? And what is he uh, going to do after um, Biden is sworn in? Oh, boy. It's so hard to know. It is an unprecedented situation. Um, I could see sort of two, two paths. One would be that he sort of disengages. He just sort of retreats and um, watches a lot of TV, plays golf, tweets things out, and just sort of feels like, you rejected me, I reject you, I, I kind of withdraw. Not, not formally, I don't think he's going to resign, but in terms of his engagement. Or option number two, which is the one I, I kind of expect, to be honest, and I'm bracing for, is just a hurricane of action, activity, executive orders, retribution against anyone who he didn't feel was loyal to him and cost him the election and settling scores with those who were not his most loyal uh, soldiers in the trench with him. Um, for example, like, Cole, is he going to, not that he can do it directly, but is he going to put pressure on others to say fire Anthony Fauci in the middle of the pandemic? Like, could it get really ugly and disruptive? I wouldn't take, I, I'm not trying to be sensationalist. I dearly hope that doesn't happen, but I wouldn't take that off the table. I think there's no telling how erratic he could be. It's a scary thought, that is for sure. Um, one thing that that could happen after, thankfully, these three months are over, um, Jared Kushner, I know we know he was talking to TV executives about having a Trump channel, almost like an Oprah show, but... Uh, for a lot, di lot different demographic than uh, Oprah. Um, uh, what, what do you think, will people tune in to that and what will he actually do after he? I think that's entirely plausible, to be honest with you. I don't think that's a far-fetched scheme or anything. I think um, Donald Trump loves uh, attention. Um, he has built a gigantic following, and I think there is that market for it. There's no question. And to capitalize on it and monetize it, uh, that's Donald Trump all the way. And if you know the New York Times tax returns are to be believed, um, he could need the money. You know, he could he could really have debt closing in on him, as well as some indictments. Maybe. I mean, it's so interesting. What is it going to be like for him as a private citizen? It's going to be fascinating. Um, so. Long story short, I think that is very much on the table, that he could be trying to build a, a media empire, especially if he feels that Fox uh, didn't have his back like they should have by calling Arizona when they did and you know by 
calling it a legitimate election and saying that Joe Biden is president-elect today, et cetera. If he's also, you add that incentive for him to monetarily and fame-wise to have a, a TV network that he's the head of and to get back at Fox in the process, uh, that sounds like something that's, I'm not saying I'd put money on it, but it sounds entirely plausible to me. And do you think uh, if Trump loses, is his brand going to be a loser brand? Will people tune in after he's the rejected president? Is is the cult following big enough to support that channel or will it kind of die out? I think it will lose some support, but I think it's enduring. I do. I think that um, there are millions and millions that where Donald Trump is beloved and feel that he was un- that he's not a loser, that he was unfairly wronged and deprived of something um, due to corruption, due to far left corruption and you know other conspiracy theories. So I think um, there will be gigantic support for him that's going to continue, I think. What could change that, I think, would be, say he is indicted and goes to jail um, or you know see what how things play out, but his brand could get tarnished further as things further unfold. But if they don't, I think he's here to stay as a force of nature in our country and in our politics. It's... Only, you know, only time will tell. And uh, right now, I think I'm just, I have at least uh, nine more hours of today to just kind of enjoy the moment, enjoy the history literally in the making right now. Um, and Could we'll I ask you a question out. about that, Cole? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, in the build up to this election, it was billed by many on all sides as the election of all elections, like the election of our time, a generational choice. You know, Joe Biden called it a fight for the soul of America. Do you do you see it that way? And if so, was this absolutely transformative and one of the most important things in your life? Do you see it that way? Look, I think it was. I think it was a, was a battle for the soul of our country. Unfortunately, I think we put it on pause. That's That was my takeaway, is that we just didn't have enough of a resounding affirmative or uh, negative reaction to Donald Trump. Um, so it's we're kind of just in limbo. And I think come 2024, when I'll be able to vote, um, which will be exciting, come 2024, uh, that is going to be another battle for the soul of our nation. Because um, the biggest takeaway for me is that we kind of just we were like, oh, we hate the demagoguery of Trump, but we still aren't sure uh, who we are as a country. So um, we're gonna either have to we're gonna have to have an election that goes up in like the 370, 380 range of an electoral vote for a candidate and a party to really get that answer of who we are as a country. I think that's really well said. I agree. Well, with that, uh, I think we've. I've taken enough of your time, Mr. Schneider. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and uh, thanks for coming on here today. Likewise, Cole. Total pleasure. Thanks so much. Um, anytime. If you guys haven't seen our other episodes of Politics and Perspective, it is released every Monday uh, on Anchor, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts. Clips come Tuesdays on the HRS Hawkeye YouTube channel. Um, subscribe there. Uh, Enjoy Xbox's content, um, and um, thank you so much. Thanks for listening if you got this far. Bye.